How's everybody doing? Corey has taught me to say that every time I start to speak, and just because I've heard him do it so many times. Before I get started, uh, I just, I needed you guys to know, I just got off the phone with the Men's Summit Planning Committee, and there will be no fanny packs at the Men's Summit, just so you know. They, they pretty, pretty much ditched that right off and hung up the phone, just wanted y'all to know. But seriously, if you guys can come out, no gimmicks. We need God and we need each other. We'd love to see you on Friday. So uh, last week, Corey finished covering the letters to the seven churches, and he'll be back next week to continue. But before we get into all the things to come in Revelation, we wanted to put all of this in context for us today. So Jesus, what he does is he talks about these times that we currently live in, and he calls them birth pains. In other words, all these things are gonna to start to happen that lead up to the tribulation. They're almost like these, these smaller events that are gonna be difficult and they're, they're gonna pale in comparison to what the tribulation will be. He talks about famines, earthquakes, pestilence, plagues, deception, ungodly ideas. At one point, Jesus basically makes this statement. He says, because of the worries of this life, because of wealth and personal desires, he says, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, life is gonna be so difficult that we get lost in it rather than holding to the gospel. And Jesus goes as far uh, also as describing what's coming on the earth as a time when people will faint from fear and anxiety over what is coming. And, and so in light of what we are currently living in today, and in light of what the Bible says is to come, and I ask God what this lesson should be, and what he does is he gives me baggage, and, and I love you guys so much, so I give you the same baggage, because I'm a good and gracious guy. The question came up, and it was simply this. What kind of faith sustains in modern times? What kind of faith sustains now? Because, for example, let's talk about deception for a second. It starts now. Deception doesn't happen in a vacuum. It builds over time. Someone doesn't just tell one lie and everybody believes it. But over the course of time, what happens is one untruth after the other after the other happens. And with this, we are a culture that can't understand truth today. We've made it to where you get to determine your truth and this person gets to determine theirs and I get to determine mine and it doesn't matter if the truths even line up. And so with this, when we look back in history, look at a time like Hitler. There were many, many years of deception before, as a country, they decided to follow along with this man and slaughter six million Jews. And not only that, he convinced this country to orchestrate the events that would begin World War II. And a committee looked back on his regime and they made this statement. They said, people will believe a big lie sooner than a little one, and if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. And in these strategies of Hitler, we see the damage that was done. And we can look back in history where, where lies have become damaging. And look, this is not just a secular problem, it's a Christian problem. We have had this problem even in Christianity. 
There was a man, his name was uh, Thomas Lenacre. He was the king's physician to Henry VI and Henry VII of England. He was the founder of the Royal College of Physicians. Late in his life, uh, Lenacre, he studies to be a priest. And back in those days, you couldn't just grab a Bible and read it. You literally had to be a priest to do so. So he's finally, he does everything he needs to do to become a, a priest, and they give him a copy of the Gospels to read for the first time. But here's the problem. Lenacre, he lives in the, the darkest of the church's darkest hours under Pope Alexander VI. This pope, now this is their Christian leader. His life, it was marked by bribery, corruption, incest, murder. That was their Christian leader. So Lenacre, he gets the gospels for the first time and he reads them for the first time. And he looks at the world he's living in and he makes this amazing statement. He says, either these are not the gospels or we are not Christians. We have to think about this for ourselves. When we look at modern faith and the Bible, do we, we feel like we as a culture could be missing it? Could we be missing what God wants us to do and how he wants us to live? You see, we live in a generation that has more access to Bibles than any other generation. Yet we are considered the most biblically illiterate generation. If I could make a harsh statement, statistically, statistically, we don't take God that seriously. And it's important for us because we actually don't know why we read this. We don't know why. We read it because it's a book. But I want to submit to you something today. Let's stop opening the Bible like we're trying to read a book. Let's open the Bible like we're trying to change our life. To let God move in us. For, us to, for him to reveal our true selves to us. And to allow him to call us deeper. Because you see, in modern times, if ungodly ideas are coming, well, let's be honest. They're already here. They're already here. The only way you will not fall to these ideas is in how much your life reflects truth. And how much your life reflects truth. It's important because hear me on this one, the life you live will be directed by the truth you follow. Not the truth you know, the truth you follow. Let me put it in another way. The only way to stand for what you believe in is to actually know what you believe to actually know what you believe. And honestly, I feel like there's this big issue in our Christian culture. We, we, sometimes we don't entirely know what we believe, so we stand for nothing and we remain silent. And we let these things happen all around us and even in our own lives. I wanna give you a way to test this in your life and how seriously you take the gospel. Do you live, do you walk in such a way that God must be a part of your life for you to be alive? Do you walk in such a way that God has to be a part of your life for you to live? Think of it physically. I can only go so many minutes without oxygen. I can only go only so many days without water and food. Is this how much we need God? If there's a physical nature to who I am and there's a spiritual nature to who I am, 
how much do I live right now like I need God? In other words, do you go a full 24 hours without thinking about him? Do you involve him in your problems? Do you involve him in your victories, your character? And following God, you're going to be called to a unique life. Because here's the problem, often today, it's one of the biggest issues. We think the goal is to be accepted or to be popular. We just wanna be liked or get likes on social media. We actually want everyone, we want to be like everyone else. We wanna be connected with people. And that posture is so hard to keep in the Christian walk. Listen to what Jesus says here. This is Matthew 7, 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. You see how this would make things like popularity and acceptance dangerous if that's the priority of your life. You see, why would the believer try so hard to be normal when the Bible considers what is normal to be lost? Why would we try so hard to be normal and how the world lives and how God calls us to live at some point, those ideas are going to diverge in your life and you're going to have to make a choice. Does the Christian life you currently live look vastly different from what is normal? Are you actually walking the road more traveled? Because what I want to do today, when we look at modern times, what does it mean to be specifically committed to Christ? So let's talk about this. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses probably 1 through 4 today, I believe. This is actually verse 1, and this is all I'll cover in this section. It says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. The passage, it begins describing those who are Christian, basically says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. It begins with what we believe about Jesus. It's why the truth is so important. So what happens is right now, we live in a culture that's trying to choose their own truth. And we see this clash of Christianity and relativism, this idea of you choose your truth and he chooses his truth and she chooses hers. It's nothing new. We actually can go back to the gospels and get a picture of this. And what, this is actually a conversation between Jesus and Pilate and you can see these ideas at odds with each other. Listen to this conversation. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now see the clash in culture. What's Pilate's response? What is truth? What is truth? This kind of conversation could easily happen today. At least a version of it between a believer and a non-believer. Society no longer has an idea what truth is. And because many have rejected the idea of a singular truth from God, each individual takes it upon themselves to determine what is true. 
And with individual ideas of different truths, real truth is actually no longer recognized. I read this a number of months ago, and I actually could not refine the, the person who said it. And it, but I actually remember the words, and, and I had wrote them down at the time because it had impacted me so hard. He said this, he said, in today's culture, it's more wrong to judge evil than it is to do evil. I want you to think about that for a second. If we have no idea of what truth is, the people who actually have truth are gonna look very judgmental to some people. And from this disastrous perspective and culture, you can imagine the results. So from a biblical sense, if I'm determining my own truth or if we are instead of God, instead of the one who holds all truth, understand the danger. Because in this idea of relativism, people attempt to become the measure of all things in place of God. I don't accept God's truth, so I choose my own truth. That's the mentality of culture today. See, if I can decide what is right in my life instead of God, I elevate myself to a place I was never intended to be. Never intended to be. If we establish ourselves as truth makers, we begin to take on a role that's only been assigned to God. Truth is God's alone. And Jesus, he makes it clear on this one. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, no one else gets to define these, these objectives. No one gets to define the way or the truth or what leads to life. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. It is why believers don't always agree with society on morality. Because we don't get to choose morality. God determined morality. In our opinion, it doesn't matter. And no matter how much our society attempts to change what is morally acceptable, Christians will hold to one uncompromising idea. And it's simply this. Morality as the product of popular opinion will never measure up to the truth from an infinite God. It'll never measure up. And I believe with truth dismantled in society, Dave's beliefs, that with truth dismantled, it sets the stage for what I believe will be the greatest deception on the face of the earth. And to protect ourselves from times to come, we must cling to truth. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is truth. So when we cling to truth, we cling to Christ. But let's act this out in our lives. Let's talk about loving obedience. This is verses two and three. It says this. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. So understand that truth is the starting place for us. It is Jesus. It's the foundation of everything that we do. And now we take that next step and we act out truth in our lives. Jesus says it this way so we understand this next step. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Holding to the teachings of Jesus is knowing his word and living in obedience to God. It's when we allow the truth of God to actually change our lives. 
And, and in living out obedience to God, not only will we know truth, but we'll experience it as well. Let me give a picture of, of this for you. In science, what we understand is, is as the earth rotates, if our position is on the other side where the sun's light cannot reach, we know it's night. But at some point in the rotation, we will come to a place where the sun's light begins to shine on our location, and we all understand this as a sunrise. We know that's what it is. And it's great to understand this, but imagine now this, that I get up at sunrise dark 30. I don't get up that early, just it's rough. But say I get, I get up at sunrise dark 30, and, and I sit outside. And all of a sudden, the sun comes up over the horizon, and I feel its warmth across my face. And for about a half an hour, I watch the warm colors cascade across the landscape where I'm at. Do I know more about sunrises at that moment or less? Absolutely more. Absolutely more. You see, obedience is the same way in our lives. Not only do we understand truth, we actually get to experience. We see its beauty all around us when we walk in it. Rather than just learning about the light, we experience the light. Rather than, than just reading about truth, we obey it and we watch the truth of God change our lives. We get to walk in it. There's this incredible scene in Acts chapter 19, and we can easily read past it if we're not careful. And it says this, and many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they, they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. Now I want you to imagine this scene for a second. This, is, this happened in Ephesus, and so all these people have heard the truth of God, and they, they grab their books, and they grab their things, and they go, man, this is the thing that separates me from God. This is my sin. This is representative of my sin. And all the others who here do likewise, and they, they make this big, giant pile of the things that separate them from God. And then if somebody takes a torch and sets the whole thing on fire, and these people don't care. They're actually celebrating the fact that these go away. Outsiders probably would come up and say, oh my gosh, do they realize what they're burning? It's actually worth 50,000 pieces of silver. If those pieces are shekels, scholars actually estimate this to be five to seven million dollars of stuff. And here are all these people who've accepted Christ who say it doesn't matter. What would happen if, if this church had a five to seven million dollar burn party? What kind of statement do you think it would make to the world? What kind of statement do you think they made to their own generation when, those, when all of this was set on fire? You see, ultimately this, complete obedience to God sends the message to the world that the cross is sufficient, that it's sufficient. I don't need these other things. I don't care if you think they have value. Compared to the cross, they don't have any value. And that's how I choose to live my life. And that's what these people were saying. And look, we're human beings. 
Our obedience is not perfection, but it's, it's striving towards God. It's accessing grace when we mess up and God forgives us and grants us mercy and we get back up and we keep walking towards God. It's a lifelong commitment to knowing and loving God. That's what obedience is. You know, there are people that, that, that believe that religious leaders like myself or Corey or, or whoever else, we, we make up rules to, to control the masses and that's what they think obedience is. But they miss the entire point of obedience. Jesus gives us a picture. He says this, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. People often wonder how seriously they need to take their faith as if having a half-hearted walk towards God is better than being a zealous Christian. What I hear, I hear things like, man, I don't want to take religion too seriously. I hear things like, man, I am not one of those radical Christians. I was, I was on Facebook one time and, the, and this lady had posted a video and it was, uh, it was a secular look at religion. And, and they said one thing, they said, they said, hey, religion's okay as long as you don't take what you believe too seriously. If you take it too seriously, that's when you go wrong. But Paul, the Bible says something completely different. Paul in Romans 12 says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And culture and scripture diverge and there's two different opinions and you have to decide what you're gonna do. Look, I am not asking you to be a Christian fruit basket. We have plenty of those. I don't, we don't need any more Christian fruit baskets. But hear me. I'm asking you, what kind of faith have you settled for? Because ultimately, people who treat obedience to God as optional, they miss out on the intimacy that obedience brings. If John 14, 23, the verse we just read, if it says love and obedience invites the presence of God, if it invites the presence of God, why would we settle for a partial response to the cross? Why would we settle for a partial response to the cross? You see, in the presence of God, what happens? We find ourselves. It's actually in surrender that we discover in light of God who we really are. I love what C.S. Lewis says here. He says this. He says, until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. In other words, without the light of God shining on your life, understanding who you are is almost impossible. Who you really are is impossible. This idea of real obedience, it's what we fight often, uh, we fight against it the most. But when we embrace who God wants us to be, we discover who we truly are in Christ. And, and, and you see what happens is, once you start doing that and you start to make this divergence from the, what culture would have, how culture would have you live, you look unique. There's a story of a father and a son, and the, and the, the father's uh, family was separated uh, at, when he was very young, and he had never met his uncle. So, so dad and son, they go to this western town where, where the uncle lives, and they're, they're standing on the square because they've never seen him as an adult, and, and they're, they're looking across the square, and they're trying to find this, uh, this son's uncle that he was going to meet for the first time. And across the square, there was a man walking away 
And the dad taps his son on the shoulder and he says, he says, that man way over there, he goes, that's your uncle. That's your uncle. Let's go see him. And the son looks at him and says, how do you know? You've never seen your uncle before. The dad's response is great. He says, son, I know him because he walks exactly like my father. He walks exactly like my father. The point of the story is simply this. We are supposed to look like Jesus and live like, like, like he did to show a modern world a better way. It's why trying to be normal and accepted doesn't work. Why would the world ever ask questions about our lives if we look just like them? Why would they ever ask a question about who we are? But see, as a Christian, the transformation process begins to take place when you're following Jesus. The Holy Spirit begins to do things within you and you begin to look different. I want to give you a picture of this. This is in 2 Corinthians. It says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is a spirit. So let me break this down and what this means. Basically, the spirit of God is doing something in you and it uses these words, unveiled faces. So in the Old Testament, what would happen is Moses would go up on the mountain and he would spend time with God and he would come down. And because he had been in the presence of God, his, his, he would glow. And it was freaking people out. Nobody could handle glow-in-the-dark Moses. So what they had to do is they had, he, he had to put a veil over his face so that people would quit being freaked out about what was going on in his life. But Paul says something different. God is, is, you have his presence in your life, but instead of covering your face, you have to take off the veil and you have to show the world. It's a different directive for us as believers. And, and in this, because God is doing this work within us, how do we respond? Let's look at the very next verses right after this. This is in chapter four, it says, therefore, in other words, since God is doing all these things in us, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God. In other words, obedience. But commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. And now we come full circle. We are his truth bearers. We are actually called to be the light. The Holy Spirit transforms. We, we lift off the veil in obedience. We place the truth of God on display in our lives. And a modern world desperately seeking truth will find his truth in you. It doesn't mean they'll like that truth. It doesn't mean they'll accept that truth. But they will find his truth in you. Last part, last part of three, and we will look at verse four. It says this, and his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. So God has given us faith for a reason. We understand that the coming battle is his, but we are called to have faith for the battle. 
And the things that are going to happen in our lives, the, the battles that come, it's his battle to fight, but we are called to have faith for the battle because faith prepares us. Faith leaves us open to allow God to lead us. And as our faith grows, our trust grows. And as we mature spiritually, we learn to trust God more than we actually even trust ourselves. Let me go one deeper with this one. And, it set, and, and specifically this. A true faith will lead to a humble dependence on God. Not one that relies on one's own ability, but one that relies on God's ability. And so we make this transfer in spiritual maturity where it's, it's not about me as much as I, uh, I'm trusting myself as much as it is trusting God. We're called to a humble faith. Now look, before I can continue, I'm gonna introduce you to something. This is not a Bible. I know guys sometimes have really big Bibles to show how spiritual they are. But <laughs> this is a, check this out. Um, this is a 1828 Noah Webster's Dictionary. I went through a, a course in 2006, and the teacher used this to prove the decline of Christianity in our culture. And guys, I lost it. I know that I reached a new depth of nerd. When I ordered this book, Amazon delivered it, it showed up at my house, and you would have thought it was my birthday. I mean, who gets excited about a dictionary? There are not many of us. And my wife, guys, we know our wives love us, right? But every now and then you have these strange moments where they look at you and they question their life choices. <laughs> and they wonder, did I actually marry the right guy? And then things come back to normal and everything's okay. And so in the midst of this, we are called to a humble faith. We are called to a humble dependence on God. You see, humility, it has a tremendous impact on our faith. Humility allows us to see God for who he is and to see ourselves for who we are. So back to the dictionary for a second. What I did is, is I went to humility, I went to google.com and I typed humility and definition and I hit enter. And this is the definition that Google offered me. Humility, a modest or low view of one's own importance. Humbleness, synonyms, modesty, humbleness, meekness, diffidence, unassertiveness, lack of pride, lack of vanity, servility, submissiveness. But you see, in an 1828 culture, times were different. This culture had a deeper commitment to God and, and in a public dictionary, what I want you to see is I want you to see how they defined humility. It's simply this. In ethics, freedom from pride and arrogance, humbleness of mind, a modest estimate of one's own worth. In theology, humility consists in lowliness of mind, a deep sense of one's own unworthiness in the sight of God. Self-abasement, Penitence for sin, submission to the divine will. I put both of those definitions in your notes so you can do your own comparison. Do you think we've lost something as a modern culture? We can't even define humility how it was designed to be defined. Have we lost something in modern culture? Don't tell me. 
after looking at these two definitions of humility, that we have a problem with truth, that we don't have a problem with truth. You see, we're called to a humble faith because if I look at this definition, humility allows us to see the greatness of God and it allows us to see our need for him. That's the definition of humility. Okay, so it's humble faith. So what is faith? The modern definition is okay. You can go look it up. I didn't want to repeat the exercise. In 1828, the dictionary, the definition for faith was over a column. So I had to grab a snippet for our purposes but it says this, an entire confidence or trust in God's character and declarations and in the character and doctrines of Christ with an unreserved surrender of the will to his guidance and dependence on his merits for salvation. I promise you, you will not find a modern definition of faith like this. And we wonder why we have a problem. Because actually how we define the words has a tremendous, that we speak has a tremendous impact on what we believe. We've been pulled at the core of who we are. We've even changed the definitions of our words. And so because we've changed as a nation, I believe this understanding is further and further from us. We no longer see God for who he is because we don't understand humility. So we come to God, most of us in our lives, myself included, all these problems, we, we've, we've bought into the lies of the world and then we, we come to faith and we have all, this thing to all these things to deal with in our lives. But I want you to understand something in this battle and as much, we're called, and as, much as we are called to overcome the world, we are first called to overcome the world within us. Within us the things that we've allowed in. So today, it, it, it may begin for, for you as a, a, an idea of a bigger faith or you don't feel like you have any faith at all. Maybe, maybe you want a faith and maybe we should desire and desperately seek a faith that's bathed in the truth of God, acting it out in obedience, fueled by a humble faith that brings clarity to a world that's falling apart what kind of faith do you think it takes for modern times? You see, I believe this kind of faith we're talking about today, it's gonna to stand against modern ideas. You're gonna shine bright in a world lacking truth. They're gonna see Jesus in you. And the thing is, you're gonna have this incredible peace because it says it the scripture says it invites his presence and he's with you. And its impact on what the world sees, the impact of this is on the world and what, it, what they see from us, it's tremendous. There's a story Francis Chan tells. He had a few weekends at his church where he had some missionaries come. And, and one of the missionaries came and he says, I had this guy speak at my church. He went overseas to Papua New Guinea. He learned the language of the tribe. And not only that, he raised his four kids in the tribe. Their whole family led the tribe to the Lord, and over the course of 20 years, they translated the entire New Testament into the language of the tribe, and the, and the story was awesome. And at the end, of, in the end of this missionary's presentation, he says, I owe all of this to my youth pastor, Vaughn. And, and, and the, they were all thinking, their staff was like, man, that's actually really cool. So the next weekend, they had another speaker come. He, he works at World Vision, and he told a lot of the stories that he had been through in his service, and he encouraged the congregation 
to, to basically sponsor as many kids as they possibly could. And then at the end of his presentation, he also stands up and he says, the reason why I do this is because of my youth pastor, Vaughn. And the team is taken aback. They're going, oh my gosh, who's this Vaughn guy, right? Because God, we could hire this guy. This is great. He's impacting lives. This guy's doing something for the kingdom. So the third week, they had a guy from the Union Rescue Mission come. And this guy didn't mention Vaughn at all. So they were kind of bummed. They kind of had a pattern going and it got broken. But Francis talked to this guy from the Union Rescue Mission. And he says, man, I just, it was so crazy. We had two different missionary, missionaries come and they mentioned the, this youth pastor, Vaughn, and they were all in the same group. And the missionary, his name was Dan. He, or the, this guy at the Union Rescue Mission, his name was Dan. And he looks up and he says, I know Vaughn. And they're like, they're all just shocked. And, and Dan goes on, he says, I went with Vaughn one time. He works in Tijuana, Mexico. He's now a pastor in San Diego, but he, he takes people down over the border and he, he cares for the poor. He goes to the dumps that nobody else wants to go to. And, and Dan says, it was weird. It was weird. I was walking with him and kids would just run up to Vaughn and they would hug him. And it didn't matter if they were dirty or not. He would just go into the dirt with them and he would hug them and he would clean them. And if they needed food, they would take food. And, and, and the adults from the village would come and talk to him and confide in him. And he says it was strange. And from, they went from village to village across the border and it was the same story no matter where they went. And here's what Dan said. He says, it was eerie because the whole time I was walking with him, I thought to myself, if Jesus was on the earth, this is what it would feel like to walk with him. And he has this matter of fact moment. He says, the day I spent with Vaughn was the closest thing I ever experienced to physically walking with Jesus. And I told you guys, God gives me baggage and I love you and I, I share my baggage with you. It's been rough on me this week because the question I kept asking myself, if people spent a day with me, if, a, if people spent a day with you, would they feel closer to God when the day was done? Is that what they would see from the life you've chosen? Because in these modern times, these, this is what we need to put on display. The spirit and the love of God. That only the cross is sufficient for our lives. If I could leave you with a few things. Are we living the humble faith these times require from us? I put the definitions in your notes so you could take them with you. Are you willing to challenge your own life to be the person God truly has called you to be? Are you willing to challenge yourself? And do you have a commitment to truth that withstands ungodly ideas in modern times? If what is normal is lost, would you hold to this no matter what? If everybody else walks away from this, is truth so invasive in your life you say, no, not me. I live by this, I die by this. 
These are the times we live in. These are the times that are coming. And whether we grab a Bible or not, we make that choice. And so if, if the Holy Spirit is working within us, if he's working within us, where is God leading you? Where is he leading you? And if you're shining to the world around you, where is he leading others through you? Is that a reality in your life right now? You see, when we come here on the weekends, it's the great, what I call the great introduction, where I think most of the spiritual gains I see as a discipleship pastor is when two or three people gather together and they hold each other accountable to the word of God. We need each other. It's why we're doing a men's summit. Men, we need each other. Women, we need each other. We need to hold each other to the truth. What are the, the godly truth declarations you're making for your life? I don't always read this author, but I love what he said. And after I've read this, I put this in your notes also. This is a declaration I currently am holding to in my life. And with all the, the different ideas in the world, I just want to give you a picture of where to start. Max Lucado, he says this. He says, I am a spiritual being. After this body is dead, my spirit will soar. I refuse to let what will rot rule the eternal. I choose self-control. I will be drunk only by joy. I will be impassioned only by my faith. I will be influenced only by my God. I will be taught only by Christ. We just studied the seven letters of the church. What if Jesus wrote an eighth letter? What if he said, dear American church, these are the things you're doing well. This is what I have against you. What do you think he would say? And probably what's more important, would we respond to that letter like we cared what he said? We get to choose the role truth plays in our lives. And in the times to come, we will need the, the word of God it, 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 even so much more than we have allowed it to be in our lives now. We will have to choose, whether it's this generation or the next or the next, when things come, we have to choose now. Be you bow your heads, please? Maybe today you're, you're looking at, at, at all of this and you're saying, God, I know that there are some things in my life that I need to let go of. There are some things in my life that, that what I realize is that this is not exactly how you've wanted me to live. And I have let these other ideas, these other thoughts into my heart, into my mind. Maybe you've chosen a half-hearted faith. This is not a time of condemnation at all. This is a time of repentance. When we gather together before God and we say, God, I realize now and I realize in everything that I've said and done in my life that the only thing I've ever needed is you. God, forgive me for the times when I have chosen something else and maybe your prayer today is, God, I am exclusively yours. If you're new to the faith, if you have questions about Christianity, to my right and your left is Phil. He'll answer any questions you have. And I hope we understand today that 
what God is doing in all of this. He is drawing us to himself in these times. I believe it with all my heart. And if everything's good and you don't need prayer with the, from the people around me, there's communion all around us. We take communion every week so that we have a remembrance of the cross. The body broken for you, the blood shed for you. We should take advantage of these remembrances. They're here for you to remember. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you did on the cross. We thank you for the life that you call us to. No matter how hard it is when it's said and done, God, we get your presence now and we get to spend eternity with you. We thank you for what, you're do what you've done. In your precious and holy son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys very much.